Well, what a great time of worship that we just had. I want to welcome you to Crossroads Live Online. Uh, I am super excited uh, for today because today we are starting a brand new message series called Being the Church. And if you're new with us, uh, just know that one of the habits here at Crossroads Church is that we regularly preach through a series where we take a book of the Bible or maybe a theme that we find in the Bible and we look at it and ha- see everything that God has to say about that. And then uh, we apply it to our lives and then we move on to to another series. And so if you are new with us, uh, that these next four weeks in this series called Being the Church is going to be an up-close look for you about what the church is all about. Now, if you are a regular here at Crossroads, whether that's for the last three weeks or the last three decades, you're going to love this message series for an entire different reason because you're going to love this. And the reason for that is, is because that we are answering one of the most asked questions that have been asked in this season. See, it was 104 days ago that COVID-19, because of COVID-19, that we had to shut the doors to our building. And admittedly, it's been a tough season. And part of the reason that it's been so tough, particularly on church people, is because of what we would call the church gathered. Now, anytime that we think of the church, we we think of the church in in two ways. We think of the church gathered and the church scattered. Now, both of them are are fundamentally important. When we talk about the church gathered, what we mean is is those times where we come together, where we come together in buildings like this and, and lift our voice voices to God, where we sing songs, where we sit and listen to sermons and to teachings and and to interact with the scriptures. That it happens in buildings, but it also happens in our community groups at homes when we sit together and fellowship and eat and and open, open the word together. Like that is all the church gathered. But equally important to the church gathered is what we call the church scattered. And the church scattered is those moments in our life when we are really living as missionaries in the communities that God has placed us in. That when it comes to to the church, that both fundamentally, these are both important, the church gathered and the church scattered. And what's made part of this season so difficult is that we haven't really been able to participate or practice the church gathered. Now, over and over again, as I've kind of perused on social media or even uh, had conversations or, or watched emails, that there is a lamenting, that people are lamenting the fact that the church is closed. And I just want to make sure that everybody knows that the church is not actually closed. The church is not closed and actually will never be closed. And the reason that I can say that with confidence is because the church is not a building that we go to, but rather people faithfully committed to Jesus and, and living their lives lives in such a way in the communities and in the neighborhoods in which he has placed us in. However, the reality is, particularly in the Western world, that when we think of church, we think of the building. Now, in large part, this is because of leaders of the Big C Church that we have so closely tied together this idea of church and the building that it's, that it's hard to separate. So 104 days ago, when, when the doors of our buildings were shut, we wondered what do we do without church? Like, like, what do we do when we can't use the building? And sadly, if you're paying attention to culture, it seems like in this time and in this day that, that the church is, is almost paralyzed because the buildings and our doors have been shut. Well, a few weeks ago, I was talking to Tiffany Dunn, our great communi- uh, actually a community director here at Crossroads Church. She's in charge of, of community groups and getting people into community groups. And we were having a conversation about this very issue. And she said something so profound to me that has just kind of carried with me the last few weeks. She looked at me and she said, Matt, we cannot think of this as an accident. Like we can't. We can't think of this as an accident. That God in his sovereignty determined that it would be good 
that it would be good for every door of every church in America to close on the very same day. Like, just think about that for a moment, that, that God in his sovereignty, in all of his goodness, determined that it would be good for every church, every door in America to close on the very same day. Look, that is a deeply profound thought. And if we as, as believers, as Christians, truly believe that God is in charge of all of this and that everything that he's doing in this world is, is ultimately for his glory and our good, then we cannot think that this is just some accident. We can't just think of this as, as the state overregulating us. That the only place that we can go is that this is an act, an intentional act of God. And so we cannot be so myopic in this season and miss what God wants to show us, what, what God wants us to see. And so while this has been extremely hard, and it has, I mean, for some of us, that this is, this is the community in which we love, that the, the, the moments that we get to come here on, on Saturday nights or Sunday mornings or throughout the week, that this is our community. And for some of us, we feel like the church has been stolen, haven't we? That this is the place that we, that we serve, that these are where the people are that we, that we love. And in a moment, it was all taken from us. And for many people, they're, they're floundering, not knowing which way is up as they try to navigate this season. And I get that. It's been incredibly difficult. I mean, I, for one, love the gathering of the church, that I love when we are able to gather in our buildings and we're able to lift our voices and to sing God's praises, where, where we're able to open the Bible together and where we're able to, to look at what he's speaking to us. Like, like, I love being able to connect with people who are brand new to this church, and I love to see faces that I've seen for the last 30 years of my life. Like, like all of that together, that there's, that there's probably no one more than I that loves and misses gathering in our buildings. And yet, as I say that, I'm also excited. I'm also excited. Because I just believe that God something is up to something special here. And I think God is doing something remarkable in this time. And I don't want to miss it, and I don't want you to miss it. And collectively, I don't want us to miss this. And so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at the Bible, and specifically, we're going to look at the New Testament. And we're going to look and remind ourselves and get a picture of, of what the church was, was all about. That's what we're going to do. And here's the good news for us. That, and this is, this is really good news, particularly for those of us who are, who are struggling in this season with, with not being able to, to use our buildings and to be able to come into these buildings and to lift worship to God. That when we read throughout the New Testament, every word written about the church was actually written in a time before there were church buildings. See, oftentimes in our minds, the church is so closely connected to the building that we lose sight of this, or maybe we didn't even know this. But you can look this up. The very first church erected that we know of wasn't erected until A.D. 293. That is 260 years after the resurrection of Jesus. Now, just listen. I mean, just to give you a little bit of perspective, for almost 300 years, almost 300 years, the church did not have a building to meet in. And yet they thrived. And now we get the very same opportunity, that we get the very same opportunity as believers by God himself to be reminded of, of what made that church thrive. And in doing so, we answer the question, what does it mean to be the church when you can't be in the church? And so if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we'll have the verses on the screen for you so you can check it out. You can download a Bible in our chat rooms. We have every week we put up a great Bible app that you can check out there. 
But in Galatians chapter 5, we have a principle that is so huge that it absolutely defines the early church. And as you turn there, let me just give you a little background to the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians is actually a letter written to a bunch of house churches in Galatia, or think modern-day Turkey. That's where Galatia was, modern-day Turkey. And this letter was written by a man named Paul. We call him the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul in his early years was a follower of Judaism, that he was actually a great and famous leader in Judaism. And one day he's traveling to the city and he has this remarkable experience, this, this amazing experience with Jesus. You can read about it in Acts chapter 9. And out of this experience, he believes, he puts his trust in Jesus and he converts from Judaism to Christianity. And as he becomes a Christian and he grows in his faith, he actually becomes a renowned leader within the Christian church. And pretty soon we find him as one of the greatest missionaries that we've ever known, that Paul would go around the world. And as he traveled around the world, he would, he would start new churches and he would lead people to believing in Jesus just like he had so many years earlier. And as he traveled around the world and started these new churches, that oftentimes he would go back and he would, he would write to churches and in their writing, and as he wrote to them, he would speak to them in such a way of, of this is what it means to be the church. This is, this is what it looks like to be the church. And so in Galatia, you, you have this group of churches and they're asking the very same question that we're asking. What does it mean to be the church? Now, when they asked that question, they weren't thinking of it in terms of building. They were thinking of it in terms of application. Like, like I'm the church, that we collectively are the church, that we're the body of believers. What does it look like to be the church? And so in this letter, Paul sits down and he begins to write. And specifically, he's writing to a, to a group of Jewish people who were much like him. They had converted from Judaism to Christianity. And, and they understood that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was the Savior. That he had rescued them from their sins. And yet at the same time, they had this deep and profound understanding of the law of Moses. Now, anytime that you think of the law of Moses, just think of like the Ten Commandments. Think of Leviticus, Deuteronomy, the 620 plus laws that were mentioned in the Old Testaments. And as they, as they thought about what it meant to be the church, they, they were sitting there and they were, they were struggling and they were asking the question, how do, I, how do I merge Jesus and the law of Moses? Like, how do I merge those things together? Because I grew up thinking that in order to please God, like, I had to follow the laws, that I had to jump so high and I had to duck so low, that I had all of these things to do. And now, Paul, you're telling me that I, that I have this Savior and that he's forgiven my sins by, by dying on the cross. What do I do with the law? Like, like what do I do with the law now? And so Paul sits down and he, he writes this letter to help people understand the law. And the big thing that he writes in the letter to the Galatians is this, is that for those of you who are in Jesus, that you're now free. That you are free from the law. That Jesus has fulfilled the law. And instead of, of how you grew up, which was relating to the law, now what I want you to do is I want you to relate to Jesus. And I want you to relate to Jesus in such a way that it, that it impacts every aspect of your life and how you live your life. Now for some of them, when they heard that they were free from the law, that they, they thought a lot like we thought when we were 16 years old, right? Like, like we're free. Like you get your license for the first time and you can go anywhere and everywhere you want. Listen, when I was growing up, my mom, she had a red Ford Tempo, and she never knew how fast that thing could go. <laughs> I mean, I took it to its limits, right? Like, I was free, break all the rules, like, like live, you know, take total advantage of my freedom. Well, in Galatia, you have this very thing happening. 
People are like, I'm free in Jesus that I can do whatever I want. No longer, no more law that I don't have to worry about you. I don't have to worry about what God thinks. I don't have to worry about what God's, what God's thinking because Jesus died for my sins. And, and I'm, when I die, I'm going to go to heaven regardless of, of whatever. And you have this other group of people going, ah, I don't think that's the way it works. I, I don't think that's the way that it's supposed to go. And so in the church in Galatia, you have this huge debate over the law and the proper place of the law within a Christian's life. And in the middle of this debate, Paul enters in and he makes a comment about serving. And this principle is so huge in the way that we understand what it means to be the church because it impacts every relationship that we have. So if you have your Bibles, Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, I'm just going to read two verses to you. Verse 13 says this, For you were called to freedom, brothers, which everybody in Galatia was like, Woo, we're free! Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. In other words, what Paul's getting at here is just because you are free, don't think of that as an opportunity to leverage your freedom for self-centeredness. That's what being in the flesh means. It means to use your freedom for self-centeredness or, or self-conceits. Don't think because I don't have to, I'm not going to. Paul says, I don't want you to think that way. Instead, the way that I want you to think is now that you are free from the law, you have the opportunity to, to freely choose something to freely do some things that in the past you were commanded to do, and consequently there's a new opportunity with your new freedom. Now, when I think of this, I think of my father-in-law. Now, my father-in-law, he's, he's an amazing man. He's this, like, hardcore South Dakotan guy. Like, he loves fishing and hunting. He lives on this big lake. He has this, like, windblown face. In fact, next week we're going, we're heading to South Dakota for the 4th of July because in South Dakota, one of the things about the culture there is, like, independence and freedom is, like, all everything, right? And they don't care one lick if you blow your hand off with fireworks, all right? So we're going out there to hang out on the lake and hang out with, with Bob and... And just to do that. Now, because of that ethos in South Dakota, that South Dakota was one of the very last states, one of the very last states to adopt seatbelt laws. Now, I can never remember in my life where the law of, of wearing your seatbelts did not exist, but it did not happen until the mid-90s in South Dakota. Now, before South Dakota made it a law to wear the seatbelt, my father-in-law, he wore his seatbelt all the time. Regularly, he wore a seatbelt. But as soon as the government made it a law, he was like, I'm not doing it anymore. <laughs> or when I think of this passage, I, I think of my son, Cademan. That Cademan is like super creative. He loves to paint. He would draw all day if we let him. Like if he had his way, that's what he would do. Well, we're in the process at my house. We're doing some uh, remodeling. And part of that remodeling is, is painting the house. And this week I asked him, I said, hey, Cademan, you want to you wanna paint a wall? And almost immediately he looked at me and he was like, well, dad, how much are you going to pay me? And I was like, nothing, man. Like, you just get to help the family. You just get to just get a paint. Like, that's going to be cool. You love doing that. And he's like, no, thanks. Not my job. And I was like, yeah, so I'm going to remember that the next time you ask for a meal, you little rug eater, right? Like, like, we all have these moments in our lives, these things in our lives where it's just different when someone tells you that you have to do it than when you freely get to do it. That's what Paul's getting at here. He says, you're not under the law anymore. That God's not measuring your relationship with him by your performance. That's not happening here. That you can either say, like my son Cademan, not my job, I'm not going to do it. I'm free. 
Or Paul says, now, since you don't have to, you get to freely do it. And in choosing to freely do it, you have this amazing chance to make an impact relationally, unlike you had when you were living under the law. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the point that Paul's making here is now that you don't have to live by the law, that you don't have to earn your righteousness anymore. Instead, you have the opportunity to be the church by freely going back toward the people in your life, your neighbors, your coworkers, your family, those who you like, those who you love. And listen, those who you don't like, those who you don't get along with, those who have hurt you, those who have disappointed you, and now you can freely move in their direction and serve them, to which all of, every single one of us asks the question, right? Well, what does it mean to serve? And the way that we would define serving is just like this. You see a need, you meet it. When you see something that needs to be done, just do it. Not because you have to, but because now you have the freedom and the opportunity to do so. And he says, here's what it looks like to live freely as the church that you're no longer bound to the law. And so now, as you look at all of your relationships and choose to serve, and when you do so, you take huge steps in living out the gospel because Paul says the thing that God has always been about, that every single law is about, is loving your neighbor as yourself. And in this moment, just in these few short verses, Paul makes this, this intimate connection, this intimate connection here that we cannot miss. He says, if you, are, if you are faithfully committed to Jesus, if, if you are the church, not a building, but the body, people faithfully committed to Jesus, then you serve other people. And the way, what that looks like, the way that we serve other people is love. That to love is to serve. That the whole law, all 620-some laws can be summed up in this one. Love your neighbor as yourself. To which we go, well, what does that look like? Well, according to Paul, it looks like we serve one another. See a need, meet it. See something that needs to be done, just go do it. And here's the good news for, for you. If you're anything like me, that most of my neighbors, most of the people that I rub shoulders with in this world do not come to this building, that I can be the church regardless if any of these doors are ever opened again. See, when you read through church history, one of the things that you'll begin to notice pretty quickly is that the church thrived because of this. That one of the reasons that the church thrived in those first 300 years is because of their acts of kindness, their, their determination to serve their neighbors. And let me be honest, with a little confession of, of my own, that as I wrote this sermon, as I thought through this sermon these last couple of weeks, I felt a fair bit of conviction in my own life. Because while I try to live this out in my life, that I am nowhere near the intentionality with which Paul communicates here in these verses. And so this week in my, in my times with Jesus that I would just sit back and I would just think, God, what would it look like if I wasn't just trying hard, but if I was intentionally determined to serve my neighbors, to love my neighbors in the way that, that Paul makes so clear? What would my life look like? And as I thought about that, really what I started to think of is that my life would look like a whole lot more like Pastor Trevor. 
that Trevor would never toot his own horn, so I'm going to do it for him today. But Trevor, if you ask Trevor about his neighbors, to name some of his neighbors, he wouldn't just name the neighbors around him, that he would be able to name the entire block. And not only would he be able to name his entire block, but he would be able to tell you what's going on in each and every one of their lives. So listen to this story. At one point, Trevor had a person, he had a person in his neighborhood who just didn't like them. In fact, his neighbor would oftentimes go out of his way to make life hard for the divorce, which is crazy to me because if there was ever someone who was like super fun that you would want to hang out with, it's Trevor. Like he is the party all of the time. And because Megan and him had this determination to serve, that they just made this a priority of their family, one day Trevor thought, you know what, I'm just going to serve this guy who doesn't like me. And so he just made this commitment that any time it snowed, that he would go out and he would shovel the walkways in the driveway, that that's what he would do for this guy. And years passed. And every time it snowed, Trevor would be out there shoveling. And all those years passed, and never once, never once did Trevor get a thank you, never once did Trevor get an acknowledgement from this neighbor of what he was doing. Well, one day years later, he was talking to another neighbor, and as they were talking, they were just having conversations, snow shoveling came up, and and eventually the other neighbor said, man, I just love how much you love this community. Like, I see it. It's so cool. And Trevor's like, well, what do you mean? How, what do you see? And he goes, man, I've watched you for years shovel that neighbor's driveway, that neighbor who doesn't get along with everyone, anyone, that you've shoveled it year after year. Man, it's just super cool that you serve our community like that. And out of that moment, They had this conversation that God opened the doors to a deep conversation about why the divorce do what they do as a family. It was this super cool moment by by serving and loving on one neighbor. There was this unexpected moment where they were actually serving a different neighbor. See, when we are determined to serve, I think Jesus honors that. I think Jesus looks at us and honors that because every commandment, every single commandment written can be summed up in this one, love your neighbor as yourself. Martin Luther, the the famous theologian and reformer, wrote these words about this verse. He said, if you are a manual laborer, you find that the Bible has been put into your workshop, into your hand and into your heart. It teaches and preaches how you should treat your neighbor. Just look at your tools at your needle, your thimble, your beer barrel, your goods, your scales, your yardstick, or your measure. And you will read this statement inscribed on them. Everywhere you look, it stares at you. Nothing that you handle every day is so tiny that it does not continually tell you this if you will only listen. All of this is continually crying out to you, friend, use me in your relations with your neighbor, just as you would want your neighbor to use his property in his relations with you. See, when we start thinking about this, the question that comes to us is, is what does Jesus give you? Or what has Jesus given you? How has he gifted you? And how can you use that to love your neighbor by serving them? Like, are you great at baking cookies? Then make cookies and and deliver them to your neighbors. Do you have a knack for working with cars? Figure out how you can help a neighbor. In Martin Luther's terms, if you can brew beer, man, if you're a craft beer brewer master, like, like use that to serve your neighbors. If you have tools, figure out how you can lend them and give a hand. If, if you're good with people, look, everybody's dying for community. That you can start a community group. See a space, offer help. See a need, meet it. See something that needs to be done, go do it. Intentional acts of kindness was the heartbeat of the church 
when the church didn't have a building. Because ultimately we serve in all of these moments when we serve, when we're determined to serve, that we reflect God's great love, his generosity, his kindness, his servant heart towards us. That we're determined to serve because Jesus has set the example and he reminded us time and time again, time and time again, that people are not projects, that people are precious in the eyes of God, that they're precious, that every single one of us created in the image of God, deserving of love, and that we can show that love as the church without a building by simply going out and serving our neighbor. Wherever you are, I want to close this message this way. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. And in Philippians chapter 2, we have a, a beautiful picture of how Jesus served us. And then in turn, what it looks like for us to live this life. And so, so I just want you to close your eyes and I want you to listen to this as I read this over you as a prayer. It says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only at his own interests, but also at the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, would that be true of us, your church? Lord, would we have, Lord, that mind, that heart of Jesus, that we would walk humbly into the communities, into the neighborhoods, into the workspaces that you lead us. And Lord, that we would, that we would look at the people Lord, as your image bears, and Lord, that we would ask deep within us, Lord, what does it look like to serve them? What does it look like to love them well? And Lord, in doing so, we pray that they would see you, that they would see you the way that, that Paul describes you here at the end, Lord, in all of your glory and in all of your splendor. And so, Lord, we, we ask for the courage, Lord, to live this out. You've given us the opportunity now, Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage. I pray this in your son's powerful name, the name of Jesus. Amen.